Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And crispy fucking critters, folks, do we have a special return of our monthly segment, The Inventory, Safe Room's review show, in which we discuss our time with a handful of newly released AAA and indie horror titles that left an impression on us for better or worse. We've got a hell of a lineup of games to cover, such as Red Tape, Birth, Elderand, Zombieland, Headshot, Fever Reloaded, Resident Evil Village VR, and we round out the month with the highly anticipated Atomic Heart. Neil, how you doing? Yeah, too bad. It's been busy. It's been busy already. You know, they lied. March isn't a busy month. It started here. (laughs) Especially (laughs) if you're anyway VR inclined, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's the type of thing where, you know, we come back from the holiday break and then it's right into January and we're kind of like scrambling to find some stuff to cover and talk about. And then it just seems like immediately we're inundated with more than enough to talk about. And uh, that's kind of one of the one of the beautiful things about doing the inventory, right? We get to kind of take these little bits and bobs from the month and uh, chat about them. But I'd love to start this month by chatting about Red Tape, mm. uh, which was a game that was developed by Polaris Studios and published by DreadXP, who was nice enough to supply us with a code. Yeah. Um, and Red Tape follows a fallen angel making their way through nine levels of corporate hell as they take on tasks from various hellish deities with the hopes of restoring the balance between heaven and hell, while regaining their sainthood in the process. So this was one of those games that I think immediately I was taken with the art style, like right from the jump, um, even just like glancing briefly at the Steam page. This is one of those games that really kind of speaks to, and, you know, I would go so far as to say you as well, you know, our sensibilities with humor and combining this very sort of like surreal and almost bizarre art style but it works really, really well for what they're going for here, right? Yeah, yeah it really does. It's this sort of mixture of Duke uh, Nukem 3D era environments <laughs> and you know, sure. paper cutout collage style you know, uh, characters and things. And it, yeah, it, it's something that's been done in some respects in other games, including games that Dread XP put out stuff uh, like Spookware has a bit of that, you know. Um, and so this is naturally that uh, of interest as a result. But uh, that also with the all sort of silent movie style you know, uh, background things of uh, sort of going into the story at the beginning. Yeah, it, it's a nice mixture of things. It's, um, yeah, it's goofy in the right way, which uh, is always admirable when you can pull off goofy without making it seem like you're trying too hard. And this is, you know, very much a, a game first uh, and then all this wonderful stuff has been added into it to make it more of a personality of its own sort of coming into it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is very straightforward, right? You go through these nine different levels and you interact with whoever the head honcho is on that floor, you get your assignments and then you kind of have to go around and interact with these other sort of uh, hellish weirdos, if you will, and kind of facilitate their task gathering. But like you said, you know, the humor and the goofiness of it, it never becomes grating. And that's no. what allows something like this that is relatively short. It's like a 90-minute experience, if that. But at the same time, it never outstays its welcome. But more importantly, I think it plays around in this sort of goofy sandbox it creates. But it doesn't feel like it's necessarily just the same hit on every floor. You know what no. I mean? It has a good amount of variety, a good amount of cast of characters. And it does a good job of being like legitimately funny. Like there's... One floor where 
you go to, and it's basically like a cafeteria floor and all the workers in there are basically on strike, the Prometheans, right? And the Prometheans are on strike because they are the ones that are being served up as food in hell, basically. (laughs) Um, Basically, obviously anybody that's unfamiliar, you know, Prometheans regenerate. So the idea that they're this ever, uh, ever lasting food source that's being exploited, but just like little instances like that, um, really give this game some like unique charm and humor. And I think it's something that we've been talking about recently, um, especially with like last month when we chatted about children of silent town, Mm. right? You can have these games that operate in the horror space, but being scary is not their primary factor, right? Or even really leaning into like gore or anything like that. It's just this nice sort of very approachable, very casual game that uh, is accessible to everybody, no matter sort of what side of the horror spectrum they fall on, right? Yeah, absolutely. It is um, very much taking a lot of the walking simulator style game and and making it, you know it, it its own. As you say, the the use of you know office bureaucracy as part of hell just makes perfect sense, you know, and having little flaws of an office be like that again is a you know it's obvious in some ways but at the same time you've still got to execute it well i Mm. think that that is clearly what has happened it has been executed really well yeah and i mean who doesn't want to operate a social media page for the marketing department of hell right (laughs) Um, (laughs) i like that also you know it has the story itself begins focused on the protagonist and their own plight. But then, you know, it expands a little bit more into hell as a setting itself and the players involved. And it ended up having a few surprises in store, which, uh, you know, at the end of the day, have a gag or two attached to the end of those plot points. So I would say that for anybody that's looking for something that, you know, uh, I would, wouldn't say a distraction, but I would say they're looking for something that's relatively accessible, but it'll give you a series of laughs for, uh, you know, 90 minutes of your time and I think it's like six bucks or something yeah, on yeah, Steam. About, it's, yeah, about five pound English money as well. So yeah, it's definitely the right price point for the right kind of thing. It is works brilliantly. Uh, I think for that, you know, it's um, it may sound sort of condescending to call it like snack food gaming, but it is. You know, and that's not it's bad thing. Food. Yeah, it's not bad at all. You know, it's exactly what it is, and it's um a satisfying bit of snack food. So yeah, you can't go wrong with a, a fun little game like this where you have a very distinct sort of sense of humor and style and you get your point across without over-egging it. So yeah, good yeah. stuff. And that's out now uh, yeah. on uh, Steam. Highly, highly recommend people checking that out. Yeah. I mean, especially when you think about like one of the games we're going to get to at the end of the episode, Atomic Heart, how much time that took up. This was one of those games that I kind of like threw in the rotation when I needed a break just mm. long enough that I was like, oh, okay enjoying this but i'm recharged now i'm ready to go back to something bigger so this is one of those uh games that again i refer to as comfort food uh because it's a nice entertaining brief slice of an experience before you know moving on to something that perhaps is a bit more time consuming but yeah definitely check that one out but uh next i want to chat about one game that i played that you didn't have a chance to but i think uh hopefully by the end of this you'll give it some uh give it a chance because it was definitely one that uh stood out i think just just even based on how it looks, again, this is one that uh, mm. sensing a theme between these first two games, you know, these kind yes. of just very brief experiences, but experiences that I think are really sell themselves from the outset, just based on their uh, very distinctive art style. But yeah. for this next title, it's called Birth, 
and it's developed by Madison Carr and co-published by Wings. And Birth is an adventure puzzle game about constructing a creature from spare bones and organs found around the city in order to quell your loneliness. Uh, You'll solve various physics-based puzzles and discover secrets in lovingly hand-drawn museums, bakeries, bookstores, and plenty of other stores within this small town. Now, this, much like Red Tape, is a game that is operating in the horror space, but I would say it's more beautifully macabre than it is going for grotesque or, again, being some type of extreme form of horror, right? Which... Sounds like a funny contrast considering you're <laughs> hunting down bones and organs, but uh, think Tim yeah. Burton, if you will. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that's a very good comparison point from what you see. It. I've seen of it. It is just that sort of twee horror, if you will, which is has its own great appeal. Yeah, and again, a game that we're talking about that reminded me of Children of Silent Town with Birth. You know, it has a very distinctive art style, a very sort of like homey art style that's very approachable. It has puzzles, which we'll get into in a minute, but it doesn't necessarily have a narrative or a story tied to it, which I think would make this actually a little bit more accessible than something like Children of Silent Town, which we talked about. You know, some people going into Children of Silent Town, they might say, well, it's a little too young adult focused, just based off of the story. It's primarily being focused on children and whatnot, which it's not a knock against that game. It's just that was that type of experience. But I think that people that are maybe looking for a horror game that is a little more laid back and just focused on mechanics and primarily puzzle solving here um, would be able to get into this one a little bit easier when it's removed from some of those young adult, um, perhaps themes or storytelling. Um, And I must say, you know, again, the art style in this is so fantastic. Like I bought it just based off the art style when I was kind of yeah. perusing Steam. Um, it has this really w- wonderful, expressive graphic design style. The environments that you explore are bristling with detail. Um, and it has a sort of quirkiness to it. Uh, of course, you know, everything's made out of bones and uh, organ <laughs> pieces and whatnot. But uh, it does really have a great sense of, I suppose, sort of like bleak humor almost just the idea that like you're investigating these spaces looking for you know bones and organ pieces but everything is like you see a couple sitting on a bench and it's just two skeletons like holding each other um so like little (laughs) moments like that um kind of like populate the environment but at the same time um the puzzles themselves that are tied to each of the areas whether it be you know a cafe a bakery a museum the puzzles are all intrinsically tied to the location. It's not just a series of like nonsensical random puzzles that don't really have a feel to the world themselves. That's always one of those things with puzzle games that kind of throws me off at times where I'm like, well, is this puzzle just here because it's something difficult and challenging, but it's not always reflective of the world itself. Um, And I would say with birth, every puzzle is reflective of a specific environment, which gives those environments like a theme that ties everything together, which I think for a puzzle game works very well in the absence of a story or a yeah. you know narrative outside of that main goal. Um, for example, when you go to the bakery, you know one of them is you have to make a peanut butter sandwich, and so you're dicing up bananas, and there's a puzzle tied to that. You have to find the order that the bananas are supposed to go in before you can make the sandwich. When you eat the sandwich, then you get a puzzle piece, uh, yeah. and each of these environments has about four or five of these puzzles and you know some of them might give you a little more pause than others but 
it's nothing that's going to be overly taxing that you're going to get bogged down in or even really have to use a guide for. But there's enough variation in what you're doing and the types of puzzles that you're doing that it does make for um, a good amount of just, I would say, not only engaging puzzles, but more importantly, again, something that is tied to this specific environment, um, which I think allows the experience to really have a lot of variety in a short amount of time. Again, this took me about 90 minutes, I think, to get through. Um, But at the same time, it was a very brisk 90 minutes because I kind of just felt like I hit this ebb and flow through the puzzles, through these environments. And uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed my my time with this one. Yeah, I mean, it's one I would have in a normal month would have got around playing you know but uh yeah, this was a very busy week so unfortunately it fell by the wayside so i will be coming back to this one um you know you were sort of saying tim burton being like one of the big things that also kind of gives me where that where's that where's anderson vibes as well you know in just terms of like the the tidiness of it all um is uh quite smart but yeah i'm glad to hear that it's a nice sort of punctual experience you know and uh gets on with the job in such short fashion so yeah that's uh, and that's on just on pc i believe isn't it yes that's just on steam um but if that changes i'll be sure to tweet something out about it on uh, our twitter because this is one that i feel like again in the sort of the hustle and bustle of the month it's something that could very easily uh fall off of people's radar or not even make the radar just because again if it being such a uh a small little indie title but it's definitely one that uh i think goes above and beyond with what it sets out to do. Yeah, I mean, I'd noted that it was, you know, highlighted by the likes of Kotaku and Rock, Paper, Shotgun as well. So, you know, it's obviously going in good circles in terms of uh, indie coverage. So, yeah, hopefully it'll sort of pick up steam throughout the year. Yeah, but now you're going to tell us about uh, an indie title that you played this month that I unfortunately did not get a chance to. Eldoran is, you know, for want of a better word, a Souls-like style 2D, you know, metroidvania thing kind of looks like dead cells in a way if you're going to go for anything maybe a little blasphemous in there um but sort of t- picks and chooses bits from all of these things and uh its art style is still very distinctly its own um it's got a very you know cosmic horror lovecraftian sort of thing going on as well so there's all these like uh monstrosities that you come across that are really disturbing and you know when you look at this game, to begin with, it uh, has such a Dead Cells vibe. To begin with, you're thinking it's going to be quite fast-paced, quite you know, aggressive in terms of fight. And whereas the combat is actually very methodical. You know, again, this where the soul sort of stuff comes in more because it is more about you know, you've got to sort of take a minute, think what you're doing, think about each attack. You don't can't really sort of chain things together. You are just sort of figuring it out as you go. So. It works quite well in that regard, you know. It's um this sort of combination of things to sort of give it that distinct vibe. It's not like the most original thing ever because of that, you know, because it, it does just have, bring to mind so many things. But yeah, I really dig that you know you get to, to from the start to choose a sort of character that is uh, distinctly yours. You the environments look wonderful. I mean, the backgrounds in this game are just you know stunning. I think yeah. Um, Dead Cells being like what you might think of to begin with. I think the backgrounds of this are less um, pixel based. You know, they are there's proper great art going on. You know, and this stuff, the stuff you see is fantastic, and I mean, it is a real motivation for sort of going further into the game 
and uh, just exploring what this world is about. And, you know, I like stuff like, you know, you can get, you know, these um, items and trinkets through sacrificing some of your health. You know, um, so there was like these ritual things where you have like hooded figures going around this thing and if you sacrifice blood to that, you, you know, kills all them, blah, 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 and then you get an item, but it takes a bit of health off, um, which you, you can sort of circumnavigate if you get past certain bits. And yeah, it is, you know, a really interesting kind of story going on with it, without it being, like, very explicit about what's going on. And you're just sort of delving deeper into this cosmic horror stuff that just gets darker and weirder. And the creature design gets really, really impressive. I mean, it's pretty impressive for the start. And the animation, you know, on kills and things is just superb. Like, early on, there's a type of enemy, you, you, when you kill them, it lops the head off and the head just flies into the air and bops and rolls downhill, whatever. <laughs> and it's just, it never gets old watching stuff like that. And it's a constant theme through this, whether it's quite grisly, quite gory, without being, you know, over the top. So it, it's got a real horror vibe that its source material, you know, source influences, I would say, don't quite have. And yeah, I think that for me was the key thing. So as much as it, for many people, it's supposed to be very Lovecraftian, I would say it's more Clive Barkery in a lot of ways, you know, but you have, um, yeah, like he's, you know, he's a, a person, not a, a term, but still. It, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it has a lot of that to it, you know, whereas these nightmarish creatures and a lot of body horror in them. And yeah, it's as a game kind of peters out a bit, you know, in terms of combat, gets a little, you know, it's seeing what the results of what you do end up being like the impressive things rather than the combat itself, which can just feel a bit plodding at times. But yeah, I think it's a really strong game. You know, otherwise it's um certainly chills out its own sort of niche in that market. And yeah, I, I think it's definitely worth checking out if you're a fan of those games that I've mentioned before because it, it really just does have some really great things going for it in terms of, especially in that visual style, which I think is one of the most impressive sort of 2D uh, pixel art styles I've seen. Yeah, and it is can be stunning at times, I think. Yeah, I've been staring at the Steam page while uh, you've been talking about it. And yeah, this art style is gorgeous. This is the sort of pixel art style or pixel start influence um, that I prefer to something like Dead Cells. You know, I think that something like this, it has a lot more expressive and highly detailed uh, environments while still having some of those clear influences from older style of games, right? And I think that this has, yeah, again, talking about it having a lot of Souls influence, um, but more importantly, I think, um, is the creature design, like you mentioned. Yeah. Like, I'm looking at one still here where I assume it's a boss fight or a mini boss fight where there's this blob creature hanging from the ceiling mm. from chains. And then these, like, maggots erupt from its stomach and you have to fight them. Like, that seems so cool and wonderfully fucked up uh, in a way that is very Souls-like. And I think that, you know, you mentioning games in this sort of subgenre that have that Souls influence, like Blasphemous and things of that nature... Um, that definitely puts this on my radar in a big way in terms of, you know, we get lots of these types of, uh, you know, Metroidvania style games, side scrolling games and whatnot. And uh, to hear that this shares some similarities with that, with these, you know, I mean, simply gorgeous des uh, creature designs and environmental designs. Yeah, this is definitely I need to uh, prioritize. Does it 
you know, talking about the souls bosses um, in this, you know, how difficult would you say the bosses are in this? Is this something that you're going to have to, you know, really fine tune your skills at before you go at them? Or is it a type of boss fight where, you know, you give it a few good attempts and you'll probably be okay getting through them? Yeah, some are harder than others. And there is a bit of trial and error to sort of understanding patterns, but 2D games tend to be a bit easier in terms of sort of determining patterns and stuff. So your mileage may vary on that, but yeah, there are some absolute bastards out there. You know, that they are just like, um, I think you see it like at the end of one of the trailers, like just how quick and final something is going to be where you like boss bites your head off at the end and is done with you sort of thing. It's brutal when it wants to be, you know, it is channeling the idea of being a challenging kind of game. And that's absolutely fine because it is, you know, it does require a bit of patience, a bit of dexterity and yeah, it works for the world it inhabits, I think. So, um, yeah, that's Eldoran. That's on Steam. That's by Mantra and Synergia Games. And yeah, it's out now. Nice. Definitely need to check that out when I have some time. But uh, you were fortunate enough to get your hands on uh, a new VR headset. Mm. So why don't, you, uh, why don't you break down one of those first VR titles for us? Yeah, so I've, uh, I've been playing a lot of PSVR 2 this week. And, you know, two horror games have sort of come into mind when I was playing it. Um, the first of which we'll go with is Zombieland Headshot Fever Reloaded, which is used to be an Oculus game when it was just Zombieland Headshot Fever. This is like the better version, you know, better visuals, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, the thing I have to say out the gate here before really going into either of these games is that PSVR 2, if you only ever played the original PSVR in terms of your VR experience, is like miles above it. Yeah, just stunning. Yeah, yeah there's so much. Even the most basic games just pop in a way that they never used to. And, you know, Zombieland Headshot Fever is a simple game in a lot of ways because it harkens back to, you know, arcade shooters. And one of the things that's always been troubling for arcade shooters when they go to consoles is that you lose something. You know, you, you, you can't have a screen big enough. You can't have the environment right for it to feel like it once did. And yet you're never going to quite tap that nostalgia the way you want. But I think VR gives you a way of doing it in a new way while still sort of retaining a little of that nostalgia because it feels so big. You feel involved and encompassed by the sounds of it all in the same way you used to if you were in an arcade and you hear the thumping sound of the, the unit and it felt bigger than any console could contain, you know. And obviously technology moved along to a point where that was no longer a worry or a concern. But now, you know, VR is its own sort of wide world, you know, as it is for something so small. And so, yeah, this is basically, I mean, again, not condescending, it's a glorified light gun shooter in that you don't move yourself. You, you, you go to an area in each of these stages based on the uh, Zombieland films, the, the the characters are there and sound alike voicing them, blah, blah, blah. So yes, Woody Harrison is there, but he is not lecturing you on anti-vax shit. So, <laughs> but, and Emma Stone is there and she hates you, but it's not Emma Stone, so it's twice as bad. So it's, uh, you can't win with these things. Um, anyway, so in the game, you have these stages where you're trying to prove that 
you can become like this champion of like the most inventive kills, which is, you know, in Zombieland, that's one of the sort of in, in-house things that they go on there. They're trying to find the, the most impressive kills. And the idea is it's like a headshot challenge and you're going up against this millionaire whose house you're in and you are supposed to do these stages by getting the highest score, getting the best kills, blah, blah, blah. You get bitten once, that's it. So, you know, on level, you can get stuff thrown at you by certain zombies and that will, like, stun you, but otherwise generally okay. And, yeah, so, as I said, you don't move your body uh, you know, forward or in any way in each scene. You can look around, you can aim, blah, 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 because that's VR. But uh, so when you finish a stage, you just look to the target for the next bit and that goes to the next bit of that stage until you get to the end. And it's like a speed run thing, basically. So they, they, most levels take a couple of minutes. Um, so when you're in these environments, you have a main weapon on your right hand or depending on which hand you're, you're leading with, which is your pistol, which has infinite ammo. Now, that's you know your main thing for that. You have to reload still. So you know, when a clip runs out, it won't reload manually. You have to flick down on the thumbstick on the VR controller and that ejects the cartridge. One appears sort of underneath that and then you just put your hand down onto the cartridge and it slots in. Quite satisfying. Um, your secondary weapon is on your other arm and you only use that when you pull it up. You have a limited ammo on that. So you begin with like a, a boomstick style shotgun where, you know, you just pull it up it has like four shells in it but when it reloads you know again same thing you have to pull it up reload in the shells stuff like that so it's a balance of using those weapons in the situations of think well i need to get past this with these i can take them out easily with a pistol but then this comes up i can ward off this enemy that's getting too close to the shotgun and trying to figure out that sort of strategy but the best way to sort of get through the level without getting touched and really racking that score up is scoring headshots which is the main thing so you know by doing that it slows down time temporarily and you can sort of readjust yourself to see the situation for what it is as you go through different zombie types of course to, you know some will jump around the place and fly at you and some you're not supposed to kill for some reason and others have like weak points yeah i don't know there's they're called homers, you know, like in that where they just sort of wander around and they're stupid and they don't really go after you. And they tell you it's basically their way of saying don't shoot this target sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a challenge, I'd say, you know, because the idea is not to get it. It's very quick and easy to sort of lose things out the corner of what you're doing because you're so used to sort of a screen in front of you and you can only see what you see. And it's hard to sort of shake that mindset from a light gun shooter thinking. But then obviously you could turn left, right, and suddenly you'll see something. You get like a little window of time where the screen goes red and you could just take the nearest zombie out as quickly as possible before they kill you. But, you know, it's it gets really hectic later on. You do have to start getting used to the idea that could be happening. Um, each level sort of has its many challenges, like shoot this thing here or this special item there. You can upgrade weapons and things like that to make them more powerful, so you can take enemies out quicker. You can find different weapons. Um, yeah, and it's a very basic game in terms of many of the things I've played this week, but it does the job nicely of sort of replicating that classic arcade shooter feel in the way that is new, 
but has you know that nostalgia attached to it that it doesn't deserve it feels a bit odd to be sort of based on you know, a couple of films that now kind of not feel dated but just kind of feel like it's a game out of time now because obviously it came out when the second film came out but yeah it's a bit odd yeah <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah no, I, I think that that is prom it sounds promising right because I wouldn't be inclined probably to go out and get a light gun style game just because of, you know, my brain is still entrenched in like the time crisis yeah. style of those, right? Where it's very straightforward. It's like, you're going to hide, you pop out, you shoot what's right in front of you, and then you move to the next section, you do the same thing. To hear that there's a little more strategy involved and precision involved, I mean, precision's always been involved, but there's a strategy in terms of the firearms that you're using and also having to worry about manually reloading, keeping your head on a swivel and those types of things. That sells the light, the next evolution of light gun games yes. for the VR in a way that I could see that being a fun distraction. I don't know if I would run out and get a light gun game still, but I would be more inclined to want to play something like that that evolves on that very sort of vanilla idea of what a light gun game is and can be. Um, and that, I mean, also, you know, just having little modern day uh, amenities like different types of zombies, but at the same time having you know, essentially what it sounds like a, uh, like a hostage that you're not supposed to shoot because then of course, you know, you can't be spraying and praying the entire time. Um, but yeah, no, that sounds fun. And, you know, hearing, uh, Woody Harrelson and whatnot, you know, firing off one liners, uh, just kind of like sweetens the pot a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it is a very, um, adult version of those characters. If you know what I sure. mean, everyone kind of sounds like they should, and I'm still not sure if it's them, but in some instances, but yeah, it's like, um, yeah. The characters that have that sort of because it's like a sort of cel shaded animated style, but they still look like the people. It's like weird. They prob like, they probably just took their lines from the movies and fed it through an AI yeah. to make them say new, new no, lines it, of dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if you're into being berated by Emma Stone or an Emma Stone sound like you're in business, there you go. It, it, <laughs> it's fine, but um, <laughs> it doesn't say much, so I guess it's not <laughs> beyond that. But yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a fun experience in that, and you know the bite-sized nature of the levels makes perfect sense for VR. You know, where you just want a little more, a little more, moreish, moreish stuff. Which is, you know, um, sorry. And before we go to the next game, this was made by XR Games. You can get it on PSVR two and Oculus, I believe, as well. Um, but then to go to the next game, you know, which in this little selection, um, which is the exact opposite because it's a full fat proper big game experience being translated to VR, you know, in many ways, without sounding pontificating about it, this is like one of those Half-Life Alex experiences for PSVR 2, and there's no compromise, you know, really, and that is Resident Evil Village in VR. Now, we've had VR before, obviously, in the Resident Evil series. We had it with 7, uh, where it was on the original PSVR. Now, it was impressive, but the limitations of PSVR were there to be seen. You know, it helped that you were in a really dingy indoor environment because you know, that hardware really couldn't handle much anyway. And so you got away with it a bit more. Um, but, you know, those controllers, none of it really worked properly in the long run. And it just felt a bit squiffy, to sort of, especially when you got into the more hectic areas of that game. So this kind of had the opposite problem to begin with, I found, where the beginning of Village, as we all know it, is very um, stop-start. 
you know, in terms of like how much control you have. So they add like a little bit at the beginning as a tutorial, which is like, you, I mean, it seems like they're trying to be cohesive by making it Ethan's garage yeah, in the house, but he has like shooting ranges and guns and all this stuff. And it's like, it kind of <laughs> stops feeling like that. So <laughs> sure. yeah, it's, like, it's about that you end that level in like, like, like in the actual garage proper where the, there are cars and, you know, like that. And, but in that, section you learn so much about how the game is different you know like um how the weapons are controlled how the darkness is there hdr is like a big feature of like psvr 2's vr and it's like a game changer when it's done well because darkness finally feels like actual real life darkness like at the end of that tutorial section you're like in the garage oh you've got to find the fuse and it's that kind of dark where it's everything's pitch black but the longer you're there you realize adjust and you see stuff and it's like really impressive as tutorials go it is really damn good i think because you know, it teaches you the weapons in a way that and how different they are because say you know like we were saying about zombie land you have to do the whole reloading thing up it's more bit more intricate here you can sort of simplify it slightly afterwards if you wish and just make like reloading a button press but um when you initially do it like you you see your body, and so you you have your gun. You eject. You know you get rid of your your cartridge. You look down to your left side. You have got your ammo pouch there. So you physically go down, you know, pull the button in, grab the ammo, and slam it into the gun, and then pull the top of the gun back to sort of load a chain, one in the chamber, like that. And then the shotgun. You know you reach behind your back. You pull it out like that. You feed the shells in you know and in properly like you would and you pump the shotgun like accordingly and it's yeah really satisfying and the sniper rifle you know you literally can look through the sniper sights and it's kind of cool in that regard so it really gives you but like one of the greatest things it does in that thing is show you how useful the knife now becomes you know knife was you know it's always been like the a challenge weapon you know in terms of resident evil the box breaker. <laughs> yeah, and, and yes, it is still very much that. But now, because you have such control over all these things, but in all cases, you can drop a weapon and it resets back to where it should be. But you can also just throw it in the air, catch it in the other hand, or you can say your knife is situated on your left arm in a little thing and you pull it out when you need it, like that. But if you want to pull your gun out, of course, then you could do that with the other hand and swap around whatever like that. And so, effectively, you can go into combat with, like, gun in one hand, knife in the other, like that, keeping it real like that. You can throw the knife, you can, like... <laughs> in that early section, the problem I had, you know, as I said, is because it's cutscene, 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 it takes away so much control from you that you, all the things you're supposed to be learning aren't really getting translated well into that section. Uh, and obviously, when you get to that sort of werewolf attack thing, you're not really supposed to die there. So you seem to take a lot of damage and <laughs> you can lose a lot of ammo that way. Um, so it was a weird encounter because I, I forgot like the bit where you're supposed to sort of go down to the bottom of that house you know, through the trap door um, and escape through that. I forgot I was there trying to take on all the, the wolves at the door with the knife because like, my ammo had run out like that. And it was funny because you, know, you can punch them you know, with your hands as well, which is hilarious, but like just... It's just going back and just aggressively stabbing them multiple times like <laughs> like a maniacal grace. It's hilarious. Um, 
yeah, so it, it just feels really tactile in a good way, but it does take time to get used to. And I think it's one of those games that's going to be really tough for someone who's not done VR very much before, or, or certainly come from the old school PSVR. But once you get into it, and once the game gets into its actual groove, man, does it enhance and amplify everything that is great about Resident Evil Village. So, like, yeah, Lady Dimitrescu is like always the the big thing, literally, yeah, for people. You know, and you really just get the scale of her in this. You know, like it, those people first and after it is their dream. You know, it really is. Um, in you know, in that scene where you get sort of captured and all that. And yeah, I mean, even with the, the the daughters and stuff like that, it's just very intimidating to have everything in your face. And I mean, <laughs> and then you have the, like the strongest scenes in, in that game, you know, where the house Beneviento, which is oh man, I can only imagine <laughs> just just upsetting is the best way to put it. You know, mm. even knowing that that's coming, the <laughs> when I got to that, I had. Yeah, I had the, the old Pulse 3D headset on, you know, with the 3D sound as much as I can hear that, and had, you know, all this very much enclosed in that situation. And because the darks are like proper darks, the way that fucking thing emerges from the darkness is so much worse, you know, like that. And just, yeah, it, it it's upsetting. Because you, you move, like, with the thumbstick on, on the left-hand side, like normal. Like, obviously, turning is, like, flick of the stick bit by bit. So that so it's freeing in one way, but not the other. And, by God, yeah, just escaping from that was just... It was such an unpleasant experience in the best way, you know? It really just added this extra layer. It made it feel fresh and intimidating again. And it just... I, th- I think it really elevates it to one of, like, the best horror thing horror scenes in anything in recent memory, I think, because, you know, where before it was, like, surprising and cool and weird in its own way, you know, it lost a bit of that impact with time and with replaying. But here, now, it's just, like, all over again. You know, that it... That feeling I had in Resident Evil 7, playing it in VR for the first time, where it was very intimidating to suddenly be in a 3D version of that house, and it, it just feel like that, and you felt the oppressiveness of it. Here, it's always like that. It feels so big and open in the early areas and then so claustrophobic in those later areas. Like, it's insane how traumatizing that game can be, I think, with that. But it also just makes some of the things that people consider weaker stronger. You know, I think we get, you know, the Moreau section gets a lot of shit, you know what it is but yeah now think of this in vr that whole section in vr where you're basically doing fucking jaws with a leviathan thing while you're walking across the and it suddenly becomes a lot more intimidating you know as i've seen and the spectacle of it and the size of everything is just like it really just impacts on you you know in ways you never thought even as you get towards the end of that game and you get those infamous action sequence things which by the time you get, you're a bit more ingrained into how the game plays now in this new format. And it does feel like a power fantasy when you get to those crisp bits. Because suddenly it's like, yeah, fuck, yeah, big guns, let's go, like that. and But still feeling in danger, you know, in a way, again, that you didn't quite feel in the original game when you got to that. And that's what made people a bit upset about that, I think, in places. Here it's just that right balance where it's like, just enough power, just enough danger, 
you know, in so many ways, you could say it's like the ultimate version of the game. But, you know, it's not in others. You know, I think it's control wise, it, it, it takes away a little, you know, and, um, becomes less sophisticated. But I think maybe that's key because when you think back to Resident Evil as a series, the thing is the limitations of movement are what make it so special. It's what you can't see. It's what you can't do in quick time. You know, those things come back to the series through the power of VR, and that ends up being its greatest quality. Well, I think that that's what's most exciting about VR specifically for horror, right? It's not just that it allows you to maybe have new options in how the game plays or controls, but more importantly, it's able to conjure up elements of horror that we all love, but in a way that it was intended or it at least comes across as, you know, the true intention of how you would want a mm. horror scene to play out akin to, you know, a film or something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, for me, the idea of going back and playing that House Beneviento section and it being refreshingly terrifying again, you know, after playing through the game two or three times and it capturing exactly that feeling of dread and terror, but anew and really being in, as engrossing as, you know, you would always hope a scene like that would be. And to yeah. most extent for that scene, it is when you play it in uh, you know, standard experience, but the idea that that could be heightened so much more that you can capture and rekindle that very visceral initial reaction to mm. that. And it be even more heightened. I mean, that is, the best sales pitch I could think of for VR granted might need to wait for a price drop in that regard. But I think that, you know, you see the potential already with this first yeah. round of what is available. And now moving forwards with PSVR two, the idea that ga certain games are going to be developed from the outset with that in mind and imagine just how much stronger that can be as great as it is to return to certain games and to have them feel anew in that regard imagine an experience built from the ground up now that is entirely filled with moments it, that try to capture that level of terror. Right. Um, and, you know, hopefully of course, with any technology, the longer in which their devs are working with it and understanding the tech and whatnot, imagine the variety of types of scares that we're going to be able to get from that. Not just these yeah. sort of cookie cutter things that people expect. And it's like, Oh, well the, you know, the darkness is going to make even the most minuscule of moments pop more, but, Thinking about how, you know, it, when a really creative, really thoughtful studio gets behind that tech, yeah. the types of horror that they're going to be able to bring up to your eyes. I mean, that's that just makes me very excited for VR in a way that in the past I haven't been. I mean, I messed around with VR a little bit back in the day. Like I've played the first two hours of Resi 7 with VR and, you know, seeing Mia climb up those stairs in mm. VR was very, very terrifying and creepy. At the same time, though, you know, like you'd mentioned, the environment of Resi 7 felt like it was perfect for VR, right? Because it is much yeah. more uh, self-contained and whatnot. So I'm curious, you know, for the more open sections of Village that you played through in VR, how were those sections? Did you find that v that the VR actually helped those sections, you know, bring something out of them that perhaps maybe wasn't there initially? Or how did those kind of land for you? Yeah, I mean, it really sort of shows the geography of everywhere in a more appreciative, real way. You know, when you come out that bumbling through the forest bit early on, you know, it's and arguably that's where the game starts to pick up a bit because before that, it's all very much 
this, that, and the other. I mean, Chris Redfield, seeing him up close in that early scene is like really quite impressive in its own right. You know, you feel the energy of like the surly bastard that he is. You know, so that's good stuff like that. But in terms of like that, when you do come out of that into the wide thing and you see the whole sort of village like that, the sense of scale is just like wow. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, it doesn't feel like you're looking. I mean, which is not fair to say of any game in in flat screen mode. But you know, as as much as you can be impressed by vistas and like scenery and stuff like that, there's still an element of it where you're like, I'm still looking at painting rather than real life sort of thing. And yeah, everything just has this substance and weight to it, and it's like, wow. Yeah, I'm just like seeing the castle in the distance and like just seeing different bits of the village and being able to distinguish different parts of the village from that standing at that point you know, is just mind-blowing in a way because it's stuff you don't really notice i think when you're playing on a flat screen thing because you just take a lot of things for granted but here like in real life your your eye is drawn to things and drawn to places and the way the game is designed and those little tells that tell you where to go and what to do are, are more prominent but you can also be distracted by other things really well like that initial sort of assault ambush thing in the village you know with the wolves is just it it feels so different now because you just feel like you're in this big environment and everything feels like a place and a thing and it just you feel vulnerable in a way that you haven't felt for a while with those sort of games because it feels less like you're in a room and trapped and trying to fight your way out and more like it's like, yeah, this is this stage of the game sort of thing, which, you know, just comes with time and age. And I think that's the most refreshing thing for me is just that every place feels more like a place rather than a stage. You know, it, it's, you know, when you get to Castle Dimitrescu, it's like, impressive as fuck to sort of walk around that and you kind of hate that you have to sort of watch your back every five minutes and most of the time you're in there but yeah it's breathtaking you know just like just and the walk up to Beneviento and like things like that just and even those later things you know with the machine sort of levels of uh, Heisenberg are just really cool to look at and just to be in just the whole industrial nature of them and the enemies and that it it really just makes everything me appreciate the game so much more because the environments are so varied really when you get down to it. And I think I was having this discussion this week about, you know, how, you know, I don't think there's a Resi game that really ends as well as it starts, you know, which I think is still relatively true with village, but I think the end gets a lot more shit than it deserves in terms of like where it goes. I think there's a lot more fun and variety to be had in the end of this game that is, the cheesy madness that is Resident Evil, but also delivers on spectacle. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's a good mix of things. And VR just sort of made me see it a bit clearer. Yeah, which is an impressive feat. Yeah, well, I was just thinking, you know, something that you mentioned about the Zombieland game where, you know, you really have to kind of keep your head on a swivel more. Just yeah. the idea of even running through areas of village that I've played through now in two or three playthroughs, just the again that feeling of the anew of just like having to be aware of surroundings in the same mm. way that you were previously you know having your wits about you and scanning your area and whatnot but just 
the little nuances of VR, right? And the fact that, you know, you really do have to not, you, you don't have the same luxury of kind of just being like, well, I'm just going to kind of glide through this area. Really, it sounds like the tension is heightened that much more from the very nature of VR, which again, I think is the biggest testament to just why VR is exciting, particularly for horror, right? Because it's able to capture what you would think, you know, the protagonist of a horror film would be going through in their own head, right? The idea of what at least the audience would want them to always be doing, right? Just yes. like, why aren't they like aware of their surroundings? Keep that head on a swivel, those types of things. And to really, you know, have the wherewithal to feel that level of control in a game. I mean, again, that's the best selling point I've heard for VR so far. Yeah. And yeah, I think if I had a complaint about the game beyond like it being very tough to get into, yeah, I think for the casual VR player, it's a no-no. Yeah, you have to kind of build it up. You know, and even I'm not saying I'm any expert either. I had, it took me time to sort of get used to it. And I was worried that it was going to be terrible after that opening. But the other thing is just a lack of control in cutscenes and things. It just feels like, and the way Ethan's body moves when you're in those cutscenes, because your head is still able to independently move around and look around and stuff. Because that doesn't always fit with what Ethan's doing. So often you see your body, I mean, like in that opening scene where he's being dragged out by Redfield and his bunch. Like his head's on a weird swivel and it doesn't look right. And the same again when he gets getting dragged by Heisenberg later. It just doesn't look right. And there's, there's times where you think, well, you didn't quite think this bit through. And it would be nice to have a bit more interactivity in scenes where you're not supposed to. Maybe a bit more interactivity with the environment in general. Because you know, as much as you have a tactile thing with the things you can pick up, like items and um, your weaponry, the rest of it, not so much. You know, there's not this pick up a bottle and chuck it, which I understand that would be really labor intensive for a game like this. But it's just like it kind of breaks the illusion a little. Like um, an early on, like at the beginning, the, the storybook cutscene you know, they show you know, is in like a flat screen presenting. You know, while you're in VR, and it's just like feels. I get why, in a way, it's kind of smart, but at the same time, it just kind of when you have scenes like that that are out of, you know, your, your VR view, which you can toggle between. I think as well, so you can in the main game, you can sort of say, "I'd like to see this in 2D because I, I don't really want to be having these problems with not being able to do much." But yeah, it, it's just. Not a limitation to the tech, but obviously when you're going for something, a game that was that big, making it this DR intensive, I mean, it shows promise for whatever they do with the Resi 4 remake. But um, yeah, it, it's still, there's, there's definitely ways they can improve it, which is good, good and healthy to see, I think. But um, overall, one of the most impressive things I've played this last week on the format, I must say. Sounds like a strong showing for PSVR 2 so far for you. And, you know, if somebody like myself that previously has had next to no interest in VR, if something, I mean, just based on listening to what you've had to say about it, you know, it makes me intrigued to look into the possibility of potentially getting a VR headset because of, you know, all of the things that you detailed and whatnot. But also just the idea of revisiting games that we've enjoyed or even beloved games, right? And having this a nude sense of horror um, is again, like the best compliment I could think to give to something like that. And, uh, yeah, who knows, maybe in the future, I'll have, uh, I'll have something <laughs> to report back on that front. But in the meantime, moving forwards, I look forward to also, you know, hearing from you about 
your uh, continued experience with you know what PSVR two has to offer. I'm sure we will hear more about it in the coming months. That's for sure. But before we move on to our final game for the month, Atomic Heart, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will unpack what is arguably the month's biggest release. And we are back from our break, and now we are going to finally dive into a game that uh, for a couple of years wasn't sure if it was going to be uh, released just based on, you know, that very turbulent development cycle that it's had. But we can finally chat about Atomic Heart, which was developed by Munfish and published by Focus Entertainment. Uh, Atomic Heart has finally been released uh, since it was announced way back in 2017, and this is set in Facility 3826, the Soviet Union's foremost scientific research hub in alternate history of 1955, where the Soviets have had major technological achievements in robotics, and the player plays Major Sergei, aka Agent P3, who's invited to the debut of the facility, but upon arrival discovers the automated robots have gone rogue, killing their human creators. Now, Sergei must traverse the vast open world and secret facilities located beneath in hopes of restoring order to Facility 3826 and covering the truth behind the project and themselves. So I think the easiest way to describe this game, um, which is going to sound kind of like a backhanded compliment, would be it is very similar to BioCry Creed uh, in that it very clearly draws a lot of inspiration from sort of the framework of those games, right? I think the best way I've seen it described, sorry, was uh, Vladishok, I think. uh, Sure. (laughs) I mean, the opening 30 minutes of this game feels like the opening to Bioshock Infinite in a lot of ways, right? Mm. You kind of are immersed in this supposed utopian society that is, you know, very is flourishing. People are very content with their way of life. Um, But then it very quickly becomes clear that, you know, what is beneath the surface is not nearly as glitz and glam as uh, the overlords claim it to be. And we start to see some pretty significant cracks in that uh, in that utopian society and whatnot. Um, for people that don't know, this is a first-person shooter with RPG mechanics, and it's a mix between open-world environments with some pretty substantial linear underground facilities um, yeah. that the player will be uh, investigating and whatnot. Um, so you actually reviewed this game for Twice. both yeah, <laughs> PS5 and PC. Um, why don't you summarize real quick for people uh, your thoughts on Atomic Heart? Oh, real quick. That, that's the hard part. Uh, I, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, when I sort of looked into everything around this game, the first thing I was like thinking is like, after having played it for it, like, oh God, there's going to be a discourse about this one, which wasn't didn't turn out being the way I expected it to be, but it's been one of those sort of different discourse. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it one way that it very much apes Bioshock Infinite is that it pre ended up with the same discourse where people are kind of mocking it out of context for not having not played it. But I don't know. There's something about its throwbacky nature and how it is stupid, right? You know, a lot of what's going on in this game is stupid. But it seems to be by design. I mean, one of the concerns with this before it came out was, you know, that it has ties to the Russian government. It was one of the accusations leveled at it and that it could just end up being propaganda for like the the, the proper perfect utopian motherless state. If that's the case, it does a fucking terrible job because the protagonist yeah. <laughs> is the protagonist is an absolute rube. 
You know, like uh, that is evident from the off. He's the most unlikable purveyor of like the motherland and, you know, wanting everything to be perfect. And, you know, the fact that is that perfect thing gets fucked off within seconds because guess what? Politics, you know, ends up being the reason that everything goes to shit. And so it straight away was like, mm, I don't really see that being the problem. So, you know, the next thing you kind of have to then sort of take it to task for is, you know, the long development cycle. Is it living up to the hype? One, it's not nowhere near going to have the development budget uh, or something like Bioshock Infinite, you know, like that. And I, I would argue in that opening where it does ape that a bit, it does it with a bit more subtlety, which is saying something for a game that is not subtle, you know, in the slightest in a lot of what it does. But, you know, it is... You know, in, in case of both of those games, the architecture of them is just so splendid and so impressive that on its own, you can look at it and sort of respect it. You know, and, you know anything else is fair game, I think, in terms of how you feel about it as a game. But it, the big problem, I suppose, with this, it just feels like a mishmash of things put together. Some works, some doesn't. Your mileage depends on what you expect from it and what your preconceptions are going into it. If you're going into it with the idea that, well, people told me it was Russian propaganda, you're not going to be in for a good time from the off anyway, uh, because that's going to be the mindset. And I don't, for one time, where I can say with something is I, I really don't see it. I don't see the argument. Don't see it. Yeah. You and I even chatted about it last week once we'd finished recording our episode. We were chatting yeah. about that very idea and it was like at that point i think i had played or i talked to you shortly after having played the game for like an hour and i was like well i'm putting that completely out of my head because within the opening hour it just shows what a clusterfuck again this idea of this utopian perfect soviet society being a success is complete bullshit and the further you get into the game the plot all it deals with is the fact that people are backstabbing and trying to be out for their own you know self-interest and whatnot and how eventually this is all going to crumble around them yeah. um so i i kind of put that out of my mind almost right away the idea it's propaganda yeah uh, the way that i described this game as being comfort food i wrote a little blurb on twitter about it um i feel that it's very comfort food in the sense that it is this mishmash of other game mechanics and things that we've experienced. But I do think that Atomic Heart goes out of its way to craft a world that has an aesthetic flair to it. And by all accounts, all of the different mechanics are reflective of that world in a way that this gives it a certain unique flavor to, yeah. you know, a Far Cry, a Bioshock, a Assassin's Creed type of uh, mechanical approach to game design in a way that. I'm, I would much rather play something like this than any of those, or maybe not Bioshock, but something like a Far Cry. I would much rather play something like Atomic Heart because of how interesting or intriguing that world is mm. and how all of the tools at my disposal are reflective of that. Um, and I think that that makes for an experience that is more engaging from a gameplay mechanic standpoint, while not a narrative one. Um, and I think that, you know, this is a game that certainly has some messy qualities to it, right? It's oh, yeah. not, not going to say that this is, uh, you know, going to be a flawless attempt at crafting this divide between open world and these more linear, smaller sections. But I would say that, you know, this is a game that when it is doing what it does best well, 
I mean, I couldn't be happier with these small pockets. It's the fact that, you know, you do have these sort of long stretches of getting to those sections where the game really finds its groove and stride. It's the in-between portions, though, where I'm kind of just like biding my time, waiting to get to that next checkpoint Mm. or that next big story location, Um, which... You know, I guess that is a inherent problem of a lot of open world games in general. But I would yes. say here, you know, the open world segments in general are just so vanilla compared mm. to, you know, the true potential of this world. Um, I really do want to talk about, you know, the smaller sections of this game uh, when you're going to these, you know, facilities and how that is when the world itself really can shine and show how weird it is and how unique Absolutely. this world is. Um, whereas in the more open sections, it's kind of like, okay, here's another village that's filled with robots. And that's kind of just the gist of those sections that aren't nearly satisfying or don't at least create an environment that is fun to engage in this kind of like robotic carnage. Yeah. I mean, and that is probably the crux of the matter. I think where this game really does fall down. Um, but before I go there, just to sort of add to what we were saying before, whilst this is not propaganda, yeah, in itself. That is not to say that Mundfish haven't done things that are a bit questionable in, in this game. There, there is cartoon in there that was, uh, you know, inherently very racist, which they have addressed since, you know, condescendingly, apologetically, whatever you want to see it, like they've addressed it. But, and yeah, you know, it's still very not, you know, there's no black and white thing on how much, you know, its budget is going to. Yeah, and, and profits are going to the Russian government. So that that is still up in the air, but you know, that's neither here nor there. So, you know, once you get all that out of the way, you're kinda of having to take it at face value as a game for what it does. And you know, I go back to saying, you know, that what I said in my review of it, it's like it, it's it may be blunt in many ways. And yes, it does glorify and make puppy dog eyes at what could have been for the Soviet Union, but it's largely intentional for the setup of the story. And the game is not a dumb game, but it's very much in touch with its sort of stupid, brash inner child. Uh, and you know, it has a protagonist who's constantly snarky and grumpy. It has an over-sexualized robot fetish, you know, down to <laughs> the fucking vending machine that literally just goes on and on at, yeah. one, at one point. <laughs> Not one to be playing with your wife sat next to you when when you, <laughs> so, so, it's, it's just that was fun, um, and yeah, you know, all the melodramatic conspiracy plots that don't really pan out anywhere, and because you know you're having to rely on the protagonist being an absolute fucking idiot, you know, for it to work, you know, where he just can't see it. Um, I mean, if we're going to chat about that aspect, I th- I think that this protagonist makes the uh, case for bringing back the silent first-person shooter protagonist because it's every yeah. single thing in this case, right? I'm not generally speaking, but just like every single thing that this character says is so off-putting and so just abrasive for the sake of being abrasive and cringy for the sake of being cringy that it legitimately got to the point where I was just like, I wonder if I could just like turn down the dialogue option on this. <laughs> you know how we were talking about the Dead Space remake and we're like, oh, adding a voice to Isaac. I wonder what that's going to be like. I wonder if that's going to be a hindrance rather than helping flesh out this character. And in this game, it is such a hindrance having a protagonist that speaks at almost every single turn. Yeah. I mean, 
So I have a slight defense of this in the sense that I think because the character is just inherently an idiot, you know, a naive idiot who is just following everything patriotically and he has this very ingrained place in his head of uh, how he views robot kind. It's kind of like the perfect protagonist for the audience maybe they're going for. It's just like, and (laughs) unintentionally maybe parodying them in that regard. Um, Yeah, that, uh, you know, the scene where, you know, he's trying to get a train ticket. Yeah, the whole thing with that whole mission. And it's just the back and forth with that, robot you know, and the concierge trying to sort that out and it, the dialogue is just ridiculous in a really fun way I find with that and just the way he just instantly treats robots that he just thinks them as lesser you know it's like it's yeah just everything about his character and personality just screams that and it is kind of bold to make you play as someone that reprehensible in so many ways and then have them act like the doe-eyed innocent you know when it comes to i don't understand what happened here i don't get it like that in scenes later and you're just like how could you not understand (laughs) it's like but then is that not like the perfect sort of vision of what they say russia is as a place in terms of like you are just gonna swallow whatever bullshit we tell you and that's the way you know it's it's propaganda in that sense it's showing that how the propaganda can affect a character or a person. Just It's just handled in a really stodgy, overblown way that maybe doesn't quite translate as well as it could. Well, that's the thing. I, I'm not opposed to, you know, basically playing a stooge that is always three or four steps behind sort of where the player is at and seeing where this is playing out in these relationships yeah. and what's really happening. I'm not opposed to that. It's just that... He speaks far too much. <laughs> I guess that's the thing that it comes down to. He he talks far too much and he offers far too little in that regard, I think. Yeah. You know, you have those major story beats where especially when, you know, he's, he has this glove that essentially, again, is uh, mimicking the dual wielding of plasmids and a firearm from Bioshock, right? And he has yeah. this glove that gives him certain abilities that is called Charles. And so Charles is basically trying to catch him up because, of course, he has amnesia, because why wouldn't he? Um, but trying to catch him up with the way the world is and what is happening and the pacing of, yeah. you know, his plight, which is all fine. It's just that, you know, I would say for every instance of the two of them interacting and them playing into the fact that, like, he is very much behind the curve of what's happening. He does not understand, like, the nuances of the Soviet Union at this point and his superiors and him being manipulated. There's about four instances of him going off on a tangent about something that, at the end of the day, doesn't really serve a purpose, it feels like. Yeah. It's kind of just like, it's just commentary on what's happening. Yeah. But it's not it's not really doing anything other than yeah. that. Yeah. And just stuff that he's told goes over his head completely by Charles. He pretty much alludes to like, ah, you don't really know the whole story of what happened, do you? Like that. And then it just, it, rather than press the fucking matter, he's just like, no, carry on. Like that. And, you know, that's inherently dumb. But again, in the context of the story, which I still think doesn't resolve itself very well, it is kind of worthy in its own way it does feel at least consistent with the story they're trying to tell doesn't mean they've told it well just means that they've kind of got something going on but anyway beyond that before we sort of went off on this mini tangent 
we were sort of trying to focus on one of the stronger points of the game, which is not the open world stuff, which just feels like it's tacked on arbitrarily to sort of pad the runtime somewhat. And you know, the stealth element of this game is non-existent, despite them trying to put you in that. Why fucking bother? Yeah. <laughs> and those sections just amplify that. So the key to it is always when you're indoors and, and you get to sort of, you get the best of the story, you get the best of the action and you just get these puzzles, which are just multi-room magnificent beasts, you know, where they, I think something that's really been undersold in many of the reviews so far have been, has been that the puzzles are actually really good. And I think they, they, they test you in a nice way. They really take some time to sort of figure out in some cases as well. I think, you know, while one of the game's problems is it's not very good at explaining things and sort of point you in the right direction at times. I think it kind of works for it because, yeah, you know, I, that frustrates the piss out of me in most games. And I would want a guide, which obviously I wouldn't have when I was playing this. But at the same time, I was able to figure stuff out. So it was not like it's impossible. It's not like it's stupidly hard to figure out. It's just it, it doesn't really help you. And, that kind of juxtapositions itself against the rest of the game being very slab, dull, dumb, you know, what it does. So it it's hard to sort of figure out where you stand with this game as a result. But the puzzle stuff, it, I, I would say, is just standout stuff up there with the architecture in, in general of the game uh, in terms of sort of presenting itself in its best light. Yeah, so I'll say that, you know, those two smaller scale sections of environments are broken into two camps, right? One is the testing grounds, which are the more puzzle, I would say almost like portal-like elements, right? Yeah. Where you basically have to run through three tiers where it goes from uh, copper, silver, and gold, right? Of increasingly difficult environmental puzzles that sometimes just have the player, you know, trying to traverse the environment through either, you know, just environmental traversal or it's utilizing the various powers and whatnot that the player has and then you have the story missions that are tied to a location that are more restrictive but those are also the more expressive of the environments right i mean just before we were recording this i was running through a section where you go through a morgue right and you know later on in the game you're dealing with androids first but then there's this kind of viral plant growth that can then infect the corpses of androids that then reanimates them and makes these hellish mutants which and humans as well yeah and humans and i absolutely love that section and you know you even go through like an old russian theater and whatnot and to your point the architecture pops and is more unique than a majority of the other environments you're exploring but to go back to those testing grounds for a minute you know the way in which you of course get the reward of new equipment new unlocks and whatnot is great But further to your point, it presents the player with challenges that make them better at the game outside of that very limited sort of challenge from room to room, right? I think that the first three hours of the game were more difficult because I wasn't going after the training grounds. And as soon as I started doing those, obviously my gear improved, but more importantly, it fundamentally changed the way that I was going into encounters Because even if it was an environmental traversal heavy puzzle and not combat heavy, I still was taking in my environments in a new way, or at least thinking about ways in which I can make choke points with certain abilities and whatnot. You know, outside of the 
very sort of stock standard um, telekinesis power or the shock power. You have this thing called a polymer jet, which basically lets you spray goo that then you can use elemental attacks on and make these almost like fire pits or electric pits and whatnot. And in learning how to do that through a training ground, because the game doesn't really do a great job of teaching you how to use those abilities (laughs) outside of that, you get like a little JPEG basically that says, hey, you can use this for this. And that's the end of it. Um, But like those training grounds, I think, are – it feels like an old school sense of game design in teaching the player in that it's like, hey, we're going to give you almost next to no help with this. And through perhaps a few instances of frustration, you are going to be able to power through this and you're not going to forget that, which is the thing, right? Is that, you know, that polymer jet became vital to me throughout the next seven hours of the game because I hit a wall for the first, I don't know, 10 minutes of messing around with it. But I remembered that frustration and I never forgot what I did in that moment. And then I was able to build upon that with new upgrades, new environments, new enemies and fool around with that. Yeah, it it, it does give you these walls that you just hit at times because you'll be coasting along for a while, quite fine. And then you'll come to a bunch of enemies where you're like, well, and your health just gets cut away so quickly. And before you know it, all your supplies are gone and blah, blah, blah. And it's just moments like that where it feels unfair at times where there's just too much to deal with. You know, this sort of third-person style combat in a first-person game doesn't really work as well as it could. You know, it looks really cool and intense when it does work. But when you add too many enemies to the mix, it's just like, nah, I, I can't deal with this. I don't. Th- I think it gets better, right? I think. Yeah. That it, oh yeah. I would. I would say the first. I, so I've played for twelve hours, I believe. I would say the first five hours or six hours, that was absolutely true. It it felt like third person action in a first person game. It felt artificially difficult in the ways in which I was having all these things thrown at me. Granted, the nature of a game that has RPG mechanics, the stronger you get, you're not going to have to worry about certain things like that as much. But at the same time, I would say by the same token, the more experience I had, I was able to not only anticipate enemy attack patterns and whatnot, but I had mastered the different abilities at my disposal Mm. um, and using them in conjunction with the more, I guess, traditional firearms wouldn't really be a way to describe the weapons in this game, but the more stock standard melee and uh, projectile firearms. Yeah, and you know, I really like the abilities in, in this game. I might mm. add as well, like from the minute you get the the cryo freeze thing and the way yeah. it crystallizes enemies, just mm. really cool, you know, uh, oh, as a thing. Yeah. And like the levitating thing, the enemies where you know it doesn't oh, just so throw them cool. into the, it just to hold them in the air and you can just shoot at them it is just pretty fun. You know, there are little by, moments by like the same that. token grabbing them and throwing them in the air multiple enemies and then yeah. slamming them into the ground is yeah like, this is what i mean it's beauty. Like the upgrade stuff because it's so hard to get a lot of this stuff you know because yeah. the game doesn't really teach you how to do it properly um mm. you know when you do come up on it it's almost always like a game changer every time you get a new ability rather than just feeling like yeah each ability is just like a shrug you know it's True. like it meaningfully changes how you play the game which is not obviously not by design, but it ends up being that case. Um, but when I talk, I, I think about perspective, you know, and we're saying how it, it kind of feels like third person combat in a first person game at times in that early hours. 
the other problem, uh, one of the problems I had with this actually was the the um, cutscenes that go into third person. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really just detracts from the whole thing. You know, I, you know, there's such um, a spectacle in some of these scenes. And I'd get it if they were like really sort of trying to sell the character you are and sort of sell the emotion. But you kind of feel like you're just dumped in these scenes. Like there's mm-hmm. no coherence or context for where, why you're in them. Like um, one of the big scenes in that game you know, is like the thing you black out basically like that. And there's this whole fucking weirdly long scene with the two fucking robot with the robot twins which you know i was saying to you before you played it just saying it's like i don't know whether it's art or the fucking daftest thing ever yeah at times because it's just like it feels so out of place and then i just think about it and they 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 were just really into being horny for the the, 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 that's it that's it it's fine okay misaligned horny energy yeah but it, it just throws off that whole thing because yeah, it does. everything that happens around it just doesn't make sense because they don't really contextualize it whilst making it abundantly obvious what has happened. You know, like from early on in that game, it's really obvious that you are a stooge, you are getting played and they keep giving you updates and it's never sophisticated. It's never trying to be clever or anything like that. It's telegraphed from moment one and, and uh, that's kind of it's good in a way because they're not trying to do an aha, really, I suppose. But if they are, it's a bit worrying because, boy, that that is poor. But yeah, it just having those scenes in a third-person perspective, it just don't work. They don't. The character is just so nothing, you know. And he doesn't fucking speak most of the time in those scenes either. Which, considering how much he does speak, and obviously, it just doesn't feel like it's him. And so it's so disconnected. It's a very jarring perspective shift on top of the fact that it feel like it doesn't feel like there's a justification for moving to that different perspective for what you're saying, right? Is that he's not very involved in the sense that, you know, it could be anybody there. So the fact that we have to be shown him is kind of just like a shrug at that point, right? It's kind of like how much more impactful would this be if it was just in the first person still, because at the same time, then you'd be able to get back into the action that much quicker if yeah. it just has that kind of seamless transition. I mean, that's one of the things that actually, while I was playing this game, I kept thinking a lot about uh, Wolfenstein, the new order, right? Because it does yes. a similar thing where it goes from first to third. But the difference being that in Wolfenstein, BJ Blaskovich is such a more well-defined and well-rounded and just a generally likable character. Yeah, and, and he has a tone. He has a consistent yeah, tone, which feels exactly. right. That, which, you know, it, it works through cutscene to anything. It, it, there's this sort of B-movie vibe going through that that is there. Whereas Atomic Art is very much can't quite decide which area it's trying to go for. So one thing that I want to take us back to in terms of the combat and the gameplay that I was very, very appreciative of. And it's such a simplistic thing, but I see so many RPG first-person shooter hybrids that don't abide by this in that Atomic Heart has almost no restrictions on the player with experimentation. In this game, every single resource you collect to spend on weapon upgrades or equipment and every single type of, you know, the uh, currency with which you buy new powers 
to upgrade different trees and personal stats and whatnot, you can get all of those refunded at no sort of you know, sacrifice at all. You can kind of just fully refund them, which really does lend to the idea of a player being able to tackle a play style, whether or not it's something that they want to pursue or if they want to re-roll their stats basically and go yeah. in a new direction at any point in the game. Incredibly yeah. simplistic thing to describe and to say is a feature. And yet so many times I'll dive into hybrids like this and there's either some kind of penalty with wanting to re-roll stats or I quite literally can't and just need to keep grinding to get more of the experience points yes. and then go in the tree that I couldn't originally. There were several points in this game where I would come to one of the testing grounds and especially one of them in particular, you need to have the polymer jet that I mentioned. Yeah. I didn't have it at that point and I immediately was like, fuck, I have to leave this, go and, you know, kind of scrounge around for some points and then buy that ability. But yeah. then I remembered, oh, I'll just go back to the, you know, the terminal and just reset my points a little bit and That's then it. buy that ability. And it at no point impeded my progression. If anything, it immediately gave me the option of learning a new avenue of gameplay. And that new facet then impacted the next 10 hours of my gameplay with uh, Atomic Heart. Yeah. And this is it. If it was slightly better communicated, that there's a lot of issues that just would not. Communication be seems to be the uh, the common factor of them not, uh, you know, really having that playthrough in any almost facet. I mean, yeah. the opening minutes of the game, you get this ability basically that lets you scan your environment and that lets mm. you help you know, detect enemies, read their weaknesses, but also follow like electric cables that help you solve puzzles yeah. and whatnot. It must, I had to look up a guide on how to do that. And I was like, I'm such an idiot. How do I not realize how to use this? And then there was five guides on there that talk about how it took the, whoever wrote the guide 10 minutes to figure out how to use the scan ability <laughs> on Xbox. And it was the thing where it's like, I'm pressing all the buttons and I can't figure And it's like, oh no, you have to double tap this. And then yeah. release that. And it was the same with the telekinesis ability on Xbox, at least. It's like you press it once and then you double tap it to pull it back and then you release it to let it go. And it's like, this is not conveyed well. And it's also a little too intricate for its own good. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was lucky enough that I'd gone through the beginning once and then did it again the next day on different formats. So it sort mm. of stuck with me a bit more. But yeah, it is a bit of a weird system to get used to. And yeah, very much a factor in the entire game of just throwing stuff at you without really going into detail. Not I mean, missions, especially are like that where it's like, go do this. Okay. Where do I go? What do I do like that? And it's, there's, there's no waypoint on the map. Yeah. It's, it's an open it's, world. There's no waypoint and there's no key. So if yeah. you forget what this big glowing icon is, which is a security well, tower. Yeah. So, <laughs> There was a actually a moment when when I was going for the playthrough originally that you know I was going for a bit um you know where you're going for like uh, where there's a whole bunch of like uh, cargo crates and things like that and it's like a maze like environment and you have to go up down left right whatever and then you know you're going through poly these polymer lakes if you will to sort of swim through them and stuff and the postman sort of rang the doorbell midway through what I was doing. I must have missed something when I, because when I came back, I just had no clue what I had to do. And there was, there was no emphasis on what I had to do. You know, it's like, mm. I've been gone seconds and yeah, I, I was just completely turned around because there was no distinguishing markings that really told you where you were in that environment, which is 
for the game in general is quite shocking because there's so many distinctive places. That was one of those areas I was stuck for ages on. You know, I, I probably added a good hour onto my runtime because of that area. So it was just nuts. Well, that, I mean, further your point, you know, the part that I was just sort of lamenting the uh, scanning and not realizing how to do that in the, that tutorial, it pops up on the screen for a second. I looked away, I looked back and it was gone. And I was just, there's no reminder there. And then if you go into the menu, there's like, there's a lore, there's a map, and then there's like your inventory screen and that's it. There's no, I mean, again, talking about a convention of a open world game, right? You're going to have all these different mechanics, all of these different facets of the map specifically, right? And the different types of basically a glossary, if you're going to have something that dabbles in open world. And the fact that a feature like that's not there and it's so simple and it's the type of thing that sure could probably be added with relative ease, but it's just such a staple of the type of hybrid experience that they're making that it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, we both got past it. But it's just one of those little rough edges that's kind of surprising, given at the same token, you know, following this game's development and just the sort of nature of this not being the biggest team. I was somebody that went into this expecting this to be a far buggier, far oh, messier yeah. final product. I mean, I mean and, people have said that. Yeah, but there are people who have had far worse experiences with this game. I, I do. <laughs> It does remind me of reviewing Fallout 4 and me and another guy, Gary, who's been on the show, you know, having very different experiences where I had a flawless experience throughout. No problems like that. And he's saying, I couldn't get past hour 10 because this happened, this happened, this happened. I'm just like, I don't see it. I don't see it. I was the same with Skyrim on the PS3, which, you know, was notoriously buggy and terrible and would just like eat up your memory with saves. And I platinumed that game. You know, no problem. So, luck of the draw seems to be a, a thing with it. Well, this is the thing. Like, in my playthrough, I now have spent 12 hours on this. I've had one crash out of the entire mm. time I've played it. I've had no stuttering. I've had no tech. I'm playing on Xbox Series S. I've had no issues other than one time I got trapped in an elevator. And other than that, it's been a flawless experience in that regard that is devoid of most of the glitches and jank that I get with open world games a lot of the time. And also even on series S this game is fucking gorgeous. I think I'm so taken aback by again, at least in my experience, how stable this game is and also just how great it looks. And it looks even better. Again, when you go from open world to those smaller sections, it just looks even better and better. But even still when I'm on those, massive you know those boring open world sections you can just stop and kind of stare off at the distance at the other facilities or the other statues and whatnot and it just it blows me away the quality of how this game looks again talking about a much smaller studio with a much smaller budget and i think something like this again i would prefer to you know whatever playing the last far cry or whatever it's um Something I've actually noticed quite a lot recently, though, when we've talked about these, what you would call double A games, you know, of the modern era, it's kind of mad that you see a lot of reviews and just general commentary about them tend to be treating them like games of a bigger budget. You know, I, you know, we when we were talking about a Plague Tale Requiem, you know, went on about how ambitious it was. 
you know, how it added to that structure. And I saw people sort of take it apart for, oh, well, it's repetitive. It does this, this, this. It's like, could you, you understand why, surely? It's like, you understand why it has limitations in certain areas because they don't have the budget to do everything. You know, they, they want to make the most polished experience and really realize what they're doing. And while, you know, that's a much better example of doing that than this is, you can see stuff in this way. It kind of becomes belief where you just like, you, can, you can't really compare this with like a lot of games, you know, in some ways, because it surely did not have the money that those games had. I mean, again, as I say, with the caveat that it's questionable because of where the money may have come from, you know, but there's no definitive proof there. But still, it's not that game. It isn't going to have that money, that production value, that that level of talent, you know, around it. And in many ways, what I like about Atomic Heart is that it feels like a game that could have been made 15 years ago. And it really taps into that. You know, the jump from indoor, intricate environments to these outdoor, fairly empty, but atmospheric environments is actually you know, very much trying to homage Half-Life 2 you know, and where that did, you know, where it felt kind of mind-blowing to be out in these really wide-open environments. And it was like a bit intimidating. But when you go back to it now, it, it just feels like a lot of nothing, you know, a lot of the time. Yeah, but you can see the illusion and what they were doing. It's harder to pull that illusion off now without actually having so to because the modern gaming mind is designed to think big and big open environment. I must have plenty to do in this environment, and you don't. You know, it, it just. But I think I genuinely think that's a refreshing thing to have that to have a big environment just to have fuck all going on in it. You know, beyond what you have to do. As much as it's not executed that well here, I think you have to admire the fact that they were like, yeah, it's a big environment. Doesn't mean you have to use it all. Just you can see it all. That's it. It's, it's that constant struggle with games where it's like, if you're going to make an open world, you've got to make everything really intricate. You've got to make it deep. You've got to make it all meaningful. And it's like, yes, you could do that. But even the best open worlds don't do that you know Elden Ring you know came out a year ago and so much of the game is an empty space that does nothing but you know what makes it meaningful is the fact that there are always pockets of things that are interesting going on and not to compare this to that in any way <laughs> but you know, just open a can of worms there yeah. almost <laughs> yeah but I'm just saying that there are ways no, to approach a big open space that yep. is still meaningful and still has something about it. it. Doesn't mean you have to do much in it. It just it's how you present it. You know, while Elden Ring had its pockets of interest, you know, within a wide open space that, that was rather empty, it's like it's just seeing it, just seeing, just admiring it and seeing what was there and how it informed the world you were in, made it the game it was, and that is where I would say you can make a comparison because I think there are aspects of that in those open environments. I am not a fan of those open environments in, in Atomic Heart. I think they don't need to be there necessarily. They could just be tunneled scenes, if you were. But I have to admire 
the idea of taking them and just saying, no, you don't have to do everything in this just because we've made it open. It's just to show you something different, you know, like that. And whether that was on purpose or not, it's there. It's different. And it does sort of break up the play a bit. I think that my only counter to that is that I don't think it's fun to explore atomic heart at all you know the different i totally agree with what you're saying in terms of something like elden ring where it's like yeah you can have this world that's mostly atmospheric and just have pockets of interesting things happening in them with atomic heart though you know i find it to be a pain in the ass to traverse the environment at all you know those i mean 80 percent of the roads in that game are blocked to the degree that you can barely maneuver through them and you're supposed to because you have to travel, you know, thousands of kilometers sometimes in certain areas. And it, you crash your car into more than two things and it immediately explodes almost or it starts to break down and whatnot. So it ends up being like a chore. The fact that they've really weaponized just being able to traverse a great mm. deal of that environment. And also, you know, there's this weird thing where they have these basically like robot hubs, right, where the repair bots come out. And they're yes. endless. So there are some sections where it's like, oh, well, maybe I'll go farm for resources here or I need to clear out areas before I go into the story mission. So that way it's not as difficult or whatever. But then these repair bots keep coming out to the degree where it's like, well, what's the purpose of exploring when it's going to be an endless slew of granted? I'm not saying that the area shouldn't repopulate at some point, but it just got to the I mean, point where I yeah. was like. I am going as quickly as possible from this door to that door, and I'm not going to v- bother venturing out unless there is a testing ground or uh, training ground immediately here, or there's a story mission. Um, which, again, you know, we keep harping on that, but it's like it's one of those things where it's like when the world is that big, I just wish perhaps it was easier than to skip over <laughs> skip over those bits. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. There's ideas there that work well in principle and i think the idea of having you know explaining away why enemies might respawn in an area is perfectly done there that's a really good idea that, that you have robots that will then you know basically remake those robots that you've killed but yeah as you say it's done in a way that doesn't really work in terms of satisfaction you know in terms of how they go <sighs> And yeah, that that that's pretty much going to any complaint you can have about the game is that an idea is good, you know, the concept is good. It isn't always executed as well as it could be. And I suppose that comes down to relative inexperience, uh, relative pressure, and and you know, budget. Uh, I'd imagine, but you can't ignore it as a thing, as a problem. It is still there. Um, but yeah, it's the thing that makes it most fascinating, I suppose, for me. You know, when I talked to you about it before you'd played it, you know, I, I was you know reading off the games that you can compare it to, the obvious stuff like Bioshock, blah, blah, blah. But then I said, you know, one of the things it reminds me of is Singularity, which was this mm-hmm. like double A Activision game, you know, that by a company that ended up going and working for, guess what? Call of Duty, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was in no way a perfect shooter, in no way in a perfect light, but it had some cool ideas and it did some cool things with them and in a really yeah. cheesy way. And something about Atomic Heart kind of reminds me of that, 
Yeah, and I kind of can't help but feel a fondness for it in that regard. Yeah. Mm. I don't think it should be anyone's, like, game of the year or anything. <laughs> yeah. In any way, but it's... So much about it, just I find it interesting yeah, and intriguing that I, I can't shake that. Uh, and I yeah. think it deserves that much credit. It's just, unfortunately, it's more than anything, it's a victim of being, you know, in the public eye for the wrong reasons and having yeah. certain websites sort of state outright that, oh, we're not covering this game, despite the fact they covered the fucking Hogwarts Legacy. You know? <laughs> but, yeah. And yeah, it just. It's fine, you know, if you want to make a protest point about a game like that and say this is why we aren't covering this, you know, be consistent, I would say there. But yes, most of those points don't really make sense now with this game. And I do think this will be a game that might be appreciated better in time. You know, I think even though it has its problems, it has its flaws, and some of my most fondest Memories with games tend to be ones that aren't that great when you really look at them from this sort of level that we are discussing it at right now. I think a binary domain, you know, especially when I talk about this, where it's like, in no way is it a perfect game, you know, despite being from the Yakuza devs. There's so much about it that is wrong and cheesy and weird, but God, there's so much about it that is so good. I mean, that's the best Terminator game that was ever made the best Blade Runner game ever made. And yet it's seven out of ten all the all the way home. You know, and I appreciate that, but for me it's like it's clinical mind seven out of ten, you know, heart much more. And you know, Atomic Heart's not that good, you know, when I think about it compared to that. It kind of occupies that space for me, um where it's abrasive in a way that I kind of appreciate. I would say, while not directly comparable, you know how people were with the Matrix Resurrections, you know, and how people either hated it because it was not what they wanted. They didn't want it to be the Matrix. Or they loved it because they saw that it was a deconstruction of everything that was being asked of making a new Matrix movie. And... Yeah, I was definitely in the latter the latter camp for that. But God, yeah, there's there's just that little something about Atomic Heart that I can't help but admire what the game is, even if it isn't perfect, doesn't work, you know. And while I have mentioned Binary Domain as being like a key comparable, just because it has this sort of sci-fi vibe, a game that really came to mind with it was Murdered Soul Suspect, which is, again, to this day, it just feels very unfinished, but has a really cool concept to it. And you kind of work, roll with the punches with that game and you, you accept that it isn't everything it could have been, but it's never big enough that people gave a shit, you know, to really kick it, you know. And so it kind of had a nice fondness for it. You can't quite have that with Atomic Heart because you know everything else surrounding it has made it more of a big deal that it's people can have a go at it for it. I think we have left this era where it was acceptable to be a game that wasn't pushing, you know, the envelope in terms of what people expected from certain subgenres mm. of games or whatnot, or even styles of games. 
And, you know, we really did used to have this golden era of, like you've been saying, like seven out of tens games that, you know, have their rough spots. But at the end of the day, they're memorable and they stick with you because they did something that went against the grain of what was the norm. And it wasn't going to be this major upshift of how people developed games or how they told stories in games or features in games. But at the end of the day, you know, those products... I find, or those games have withstood the test of time in that regard because you can come back to them and they're still unique and they still capitalize on that in a way that is wholly their own. Um, And I would say, you know, like with Atomic Heart, I told myself I was going to play an hour of that today before we recorded. And I ended up playing like three hours before because I Mm -hmm. kept hitting these little pockets of where the game pops. And, you know, part of that's a testament to uh, Mick Gordon's score coming Mm -hmm. in in pristine moment. Uh, whether it's, you know, fighting a horde of those mutant enemies or fighting a boss, right? Just that score kicks in and you start go- doing the fluidity of jumping between firearms and your powers and all of the different techniques and sort of strategies that you've taught yourself over the course of the last, you know, 10 or so hours. In this game, when it finds its stride, that stride is something that I don't want to see end. It's just yes. that, you know, getting between those moments is the part where it starts to wear itself a little thin. But, you know, as I said, I would much rather play something like Atomic Heart than one of the more mainstay sort of like yearly staples that does this sort of mix of open world RPG FPS hybrid mechanics because this world is intriguing. Whether or not the story lands for me, whether I care for the protagonist and whatnot, you know, the world itself is intriguing enough and all of those mechanics and elements and characters and creatures and monsters and whatnot are all representative of it. And so if I was to revisit this game in a year or even just, you know, keep playing this throughout the next month or so, it's the type of thing where I'm going to cherish my time with those smaller moments more, even if at the end of the day, you know, I'm not going to be able to talk about this at the end of the year. Like it's one of my favorites just because of the certain qualms that I still have with the game design at its root, those rough edges, which don't make it a bad game. It just stops the game from being great for me. Um, while at the same time, it's such a, it, this game is such a conundrum for me to talk about. Cause again, yeah, you know, yeah. going from the E3 footage of this game from back in the day to following the dev cycle of it to this, you know, controversy surrounding it and whatnot. In my opinion, this game came out far better than I ever thought it would. Oh, yeah. You know while I mean? still having plenty of qualms with some of the rough edges. Like I've, the state that this game was delivered in, at least again, off of my experience with it, I'm kind of floored still by just how, I don't want to say streamlined, but just how functional it is, which sounds like a backhanded compliment, but (laughs) just being so devoid of what I have been almost trained to expect of games that dabble in this open world, you know, multiple genre hybrids. Um, So it's been in many ways a welcome surprise and an entertaining surprise if I still don't have, you know, some reservations, some heavy reservations with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a reason we left it to last on this episode because there was clearly so much to talk about. Even without really speaking about it beforehand, we knew there would be so much to talk about. You know, like I said to you before, it's like I had that dread of what the discourse would be about this game, you know, because... All I read about it, and then I, I saw comments from people before the embargo went up uh, who were also reviewing it. I was like, oh, Jesus, it's going to be a whole thing. I'm going to be the guy given the highest score to this game, which I gave 7.5 out of 10. Yeah, and it didn't turn out to be the highest by any, any margin. But 
it was still just like, <laughs> God, I don't want to be the one where I have fucking social media coming at me because I was the guy <laughs> that gave the high school to the game that everyone hated. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it tends to not be that way around these days, let's be honest. It, it's usually the other way around. <laughs> you, you slag the game that everyone likes. But, um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, I'm never going to pretend that Atomic Heart is a perfect experience. I we've spent this long talking about it, yeah, and the, the good and the bad of it to say that much, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have qualities that are appealing. Yeah, and you know, I've often gone about on about soundtracks being this like thing where I will skew so much in a game with the soundtrack. It's sweet hot. I mean, it is good in this game. Yeah. Mick Gordon does a better Doom soundtrack here than he did end up having for Doom Eternal, you know, for reasons that aren't his own necessarily. But, you know, it's just, I can't help it. There is just, I want, I, I like the architecture of this game in the same way that I like soundtracks in so many games. And it excuses so much for me because I think it tells a story better than the writing itself does you know and you know it tells of a time and a place and a progression that never happened and this retro future sort of tech stuff it it all works in a way i find more impressive than bioshock infinite maybe did you know and which i you know which you know that was always that game's strong suit so yeah it doesn't make it necessarily a better game doesn't necessarily make it better in other ways it just means that there is something about it that resonates you know it's like you can find in movies all the times you know movies that resonate with you no matter how terrible they might be because they do a certain thing that just clicks with you like that and it's easier to do that when you're talking about movies and discussing movies or even music than it is with games where there is this general concession that anything that isn't excellent is terrible. That's it. Uh, that's it. So something that's middling, something that might be flawed, isn't worth your time. You know, it might as well be a zero out of ten sort of thing. And no one is willing to play anything that is actually close to a zero out of ten in order to find out what that is. So right. we have this constant rut. You know, whereas because the other mediums have been around a lot longer, there's much more expression about that and less retaliation to that. Um, yeah, so what can you do? That is the way of it. I much prefer to be thinking like this, though, about a video game where I can have this longer conversation about it, have such conflicting thoughts about it, uh, and take it in such a measured way without really just going on a fucking torch burning fucking thing about the whole thing you know and has to be this or has to be that you know i'm not picking sides i'm not sitting on the fence here with this game i'm seeing it for what it is as much as i can you know and it really is just this something you know it's it it has something about it that and the whole process around it is fascinating to me that in a way that so many games aren't they are just uh, this type they are, they are polished in some way and then they don't or do deliver whatever and that's great yeah but. you know i also think that this is 
one of the, and I'm not saying that this is going to be the game, but you know, it's why we do our sort of midway through the year best of list, right? Because we Mm. get to return to certain games that we've played previously in the year and just see how they appreciate. And, you know, I'm not saying this is going to probably appreciate to the degree that it gets projected onto a best of the year list for me. But at the same time, this is a type of game that I see appreciating much better the further from its release it gets. I'm not yeah. saying it's going to be, you know, catapulted into top tens or top fives no, no, of the no. years and whatnot. But it is the type of game, I think, that when it's removed from some of the controversy, whether that ends up being founded or not, and, and seeing how that plays out and whatnot, but also just perhaps, again, it, it, there's also this kind of fucked up cycle that we're consistently in with like expectations right and how yeah. a great deal of people and it seems or gamers or fans of games and whatnot you know expectation becomes insurmountable for the product itself right because of how the hype cycle works and everything yeah. like that and a game like this when people actually have time to sit down and properly play it get to spend a good chunk of time with it or even just coming to it when they have time to really give the type of attention that's something that dabbles in open world needs it's the type of game that I think that, you know, some of the perhaps far lower scores that I saw for this um, will probably, again, appreciate perhaps a little bit better. Because um, at the end of the day, Maybe. you know, even the qualms that we had, well, hopefully, um, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's the type of game that I think even with the qualms that we've had for it, uh, with it, it, still at the end of the day, it is so much more unique than I think it's getting credit for in some pretty fundamental ways, especially when you look at, again, this particular subgenre that the game operates in. Um, but yeah, you know, as always, it was nice to have a uh, a nice long chat about something that uh, we've both been, I think, anticipating for a good long while. Um, and on top of all the other games we got to chat about for this month and you getting to share a, a good chunk of the VR stuff that you've got to play. Um, and that, I mean, if you told me by the end of this chat that I was going to be looking up the prices and seeing how I can finance a <laughs> VR2 headset, uh, I would have called you a liar. But it's definitely something I'm eyeing on the horizon just at that the potential. Well, yeah, that. You, you, you've got to invest in the whole hardware beyond it as well. So. Yeah, well, there's that too. That's the thing. My financing is going to be in more than one way. But uh, yeah, I, I was already halfway there. So it's like, <laughs> it wasn't so bad. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, as always, the inventory is a great chance for us to kind of just, you know, slow down and take a look at stuff that came out over the course of the month that perhaps we didn't get a chance to cover early on. And, you know, of course, with March right around the corner, we're going to be looking to uh, chat about another slew of uh, bite-sized indie horror titles for Horror Bites, which, of course, we both can't wait to do and tackle some of those uh, unique experiences that we always love kickstarting our months with. Yeah, and you know, not to mention it happens to be the anniversary game we've talked about a lot today, which is Bioshock Infinite, so we'll likely be covering that as well. And uh, next month's inventory will, of course, have um, a very big game in it, uh, in terms of uh, Resident Evil 4 Remake, so among other things. So yeah, it's um, March is full of the madness, it has to be said. <laughs> The month's already piling up and hasn't even begun, but uh, we'll exactly. both be there. Uh, I'm not feeling the pressure. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not six reviews deep. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, no matter how hectic the month gets, we'll uh, we'll be here to chat about those games in some more depth and whatnot. But uh, yeah, man, as always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Indeed. Until the next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. 
If you enjoy the show, please rate us at iTunes and follow us on Twitter at SafeRoomPod for show updates. You can also join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. You can also drop us an email over at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.